This week on the show, we cover FreeBSD 13 beta benchmarks, a FreeBSD deep dive into jails by Clara Systems, a FreeBSD foundation looking for a senior kernel developer in the ARM space and an open source project coordinator, a macOS inspired BSD desktop OS by Hello System, a trip into FreeBSD and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 392, macOS Inspired Desktop. Recorded for the 24th of February, 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hello, this is your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Dan Langell. Whoa, surprise. We have a bit of a... a replacement here for Alan, not a permanent one, but occasionally we mix in some new people Def- definitely not a replacement for alan <laughs> yeah but you're not a completely newcomer to podcasting right no uh i i did TechSnap, i think for a year or almost a year or exactly a year something like that i, I don't remember how long ago it was but i think that stopped in 2017 is it that long ago uh, could be I, I think I was just looking at notes th- this morning. I think it was 2017. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. So um, for the people who probably have never heard of you, which is unlikely, what can we blame you for? Mm, my first big contribution was the FreeBSD diary. My next was then uh, BSD can. And I think Fresh Ports was about the same time. And then about four years later came PGCon. And lately, oh yes, and then I started up another diary called Dan Langell's Other Diary. And I just basically moved my blogging from the FreeBSD diary onto Dan Langell, dan.langell.org. Not because I didn't want to write the FreeBSD diary anymore. It's just that I started using uh, WordPress and I liked it a lot better than my homegrown blogging system Mm. and people say why'd you write your own well blogging as a word didn't actually exist i think when i started that or then there was certainly no widespread software for it right yeah so we covered your uh various blog posts a couple times here on the show people might remember and uh, we always comment that we like the way you put them together like not just here's an error message that's how i solved it but the steps in between even the ones that didn't go as expected so everyone can see what uh, you did to make that work. And I, I'm often surprised when, when I'm listening to the podcast and I, and I hear my name come up. I say, oh, what are they going to talk about? And sometimes, <laughs> it, sometimes it's not immediately obvious that it's one of my blog posts until you mention the name. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's always good uh, material for the show. Uh, so why don't we start with the headlines for this week? Um, this is... Uh, FreeBSD 13 beta benchmarks uh, performance is much better over at Pharonix. This is an interesting benchmark article to read. And I'm always hesitant about putting much weight into benchmark stuff because they're always comparing A against B. And people who like the the benchmark come out and say, oh, wow, this is great. And people that don't like the benchmark can come out and say, did you optimize foo properly? What about bar? 
come on, you could not have done this properly. And that's especially when their favorite tool is not coming out ahead. In here, I started reading that some of the optimizations are in the in the NUMA area, and that's not to be confused with NUMA NUMA. If you don't know that song, go search for it on YouTube. It, it, it's a classic. Um, the benchmarks were done on two different systems, and they have a third one that they're that's underway that is going to confirm those other two. But they were both on logic systems. One was a Carbon Seven Hundred, and was one was a Helix Five Hundred. And I'm not familiar with those boxes. Have you ever seen them or used them? Mm, no. They look very Probably. pretty. Yeah, it's a, it's a decent box. I like the yeah. looks. So one one of the changes, in, in, um, they're comparing FreeBSD 12 and FreeBSD 13. And one of the major changes in there is they've gone from LLVM 10 to LLVM 11. And a lot of the performance front, uh, on the performance front, they've updated to open ZFS 2.0. Um, They've done some Intel hardware P states work, HWP. Uh, I mentioned the NUMA optimizations. And the network optimizations are interesting, and I'll come back to that. And basically, they don't have the comprehensive FreeBSD 13 release notes yet, so they, they can't talk much about that. But Yeah, the, that's still beta. Yeah. The really neat thing that I saw was the network optimizations, which was on IF Bridge. Um, and that's all the kernel code for uh, network bridge device support. And this all came about because of a FreeBSD Foundation community grant. And basically, basically, how many times can I say basically in one podcast? Well, I'm guilty of that as you well. You count. <laughs> uh, they got up to a five times performance improvement for IF Bridge. And that's because they had found a performance bottleneck hitting. Um, it was actually hitting commercial operators in France, uh, Orange Telecom Network. And it was all centered around a single mutex for, for this network switch code. And there's a limiting, uh, they hit a limit of, of about 3.7 million packets per second. But they changed from using a, a mutex to using Epoch on 13.3, FreeBSD 13 current. So that allowed greater concurrency which, uh, without needing a lock or a mutex. And then performance went from 4 million, I'm rounding up, from 4 million packets per second to nearly 19 million packets per second. And that's huge. That's, mm. that, that's a huge breakthrough. Um, and they say that the scaling will probably get even better on uh, large core counts with this new uh, bridge code. Um, but yeah, uh, it was. Christoph that did the work. I didn't. Yeah, Christoph Provost. Yeah. Thank you. I didn't didn't get the full name in here, but Christoph did it, and he said that basically it was only one. It, the final result is they still only perform one modification of the bridge state at a time, but we can keep processing packets on all other CPU cores while they do that, and that basically is what allowed the five times uh, speed performance. Mm -hmm. So I'm still looking at whether they did the just downloaded the beta, which might still uh, contain the debug symbols. Mm. So this might be a bit of an unfair comparison, but still it's faster. I, I didn't see any men mention of of whether or not the debug stuff was in there. 
But if it was, and I can't imagine that Chris would have done that. Oh no, Chris didn't do the the benchmarks, did he? No, the, yeah, the the, the Pharonix benchmarks in in general that they did. Yeah, I, I if they did it with debug, we're going to get an even bigger uh, throughput increase. But yeah, I looked at six pages of graphs there, and everything was better in in thirteen than it was in twelve. Yeah, so. Uh, take these numbers with a bit of grain of salt, but uh, they look good already. Um, but when uh, 13 officially comes out, uh, and that's soon enough, I mean, if we're in beta, then it's going to be a couple of weeks until they uh, release that. But we can look forward to it, definitely. I didn't realize it. it's just March when it's coming out. Not mm -hmm. far away yeah. at all. If nothing appears uh, that's uh, big of a, a breaker or mm -hmm. that they need to fix before that, then uh, it's very soon around and we can do our benchmarks uh, on our own machines. Yep. So yeah, um, that's a great thing. And uh, yeah, um, if you want to help test, then definitely get a 13 beta snapshot and report anything that you find. If that's not been found already, then um, people can fix that before the release comes out. Okay, um, then we have something about jails from Clara Systems because they did a deep dive into the beginning of FreeBSD containers. And I, I stumbled across this article before we, we, we started in on this today. And I, I learned some information here that I did not know. I, I always thought that um, jails originated with Paul, which they did, Paul Henning, originated jails, but this gives you some background information as to how this sort of started about. And it goes way, way back to the 60s with IBM. And one of the systems they had was an IBM uh, 360. And I'm going to delve into a sidetrack here. I used an IBM 360 at University of Ottawa in the late 70s. They had a computer club that allowed high school students to get access. And I used punch cards and submitted batch programs and waited for the printouts. And this becomes relevant later on. Later, I got access to time-sharing terminals using APL, APL uh, golf ball-like print heads on a, I think on an IBM Selectrix type typewriter teletype system. And I remember writing some game, but anyway. <laughs> so that's but the first thing that students do as well yep. nowadays <laughs> so ibm lost a contract and that's when they realized there's actually demand for time sharing so in in computing terms we all take this for granted now in computing terms this is a big step uh time sharing is a sharing of computing resource among many users at the same time by means of multi-programming and multitasking and, and this was a new idea then and I mentioned batch jobs. You ran one at a time, one after another, and that was that was batch. You had an operator that stood there and fed the cards into the machine one after the other, took the printout, put it back in the bin with your cards, and you went and picked it up. And so then when I started using time sharing, it was so cool because here I can edit my file and put it in, save it, and come back to it later. I don't have to carry around a card cardboard box filled with punch cards anymore. So. IBM came out with something called CPCMS, and the CP was control program, and the C CMS, did I say CPS? No, CMS. CMS stood for console monitor system. And one was a small single user operating system, which was interactive, and CP was a program which created virtual machines. 
and the CP ran on the mainframe and created virtual machines, which ran the CMS, which a user would then interact act with. Th this came out, the first stable version of this came out in about 72. So this is the fir first step on the way to jails. The next step was the creation of chroot. And chroot is what allows you to change the root directory of a process. And the important part of chroot is that it affects the process it's running and all of its children. So if you start something in the jail and it starts other things, everything is in the jail. And that's key to how jails today work. Um, and Marshall Kirk McCusick uh, said that chroot was created by Bill Joy to create a test build of 4.2 BSD. And he based that on the, the, the source code control system logs in the system. However, according to Warner Losh, this appears to be incorrect. And chroot was introduced in seventh edition Unix from Bell Labs in 79. Um, two BSD was released the same year. And it appears that this error occurred because the code was moved around in the kernel. So that might look like, uh, I don't know how that version control system worked, but it might look like suddenly it appeared here when it actually just was moved from somewhere else. And Michael Lucas also points to the fact that the earliest jail-like code appeared between 75 and 79 in the Unix uh, snapshots. Hmm. I see. Yep. Now, the rest of the story is a story that I think everyone is probably familiar with if you've ever read up on jails, where it was a guy named uh, Derek Woolworth. He ran a web hosting company, and he had problems with... He had a problem to solve, and it was that different customers wanted to run different versions of Apache and MySQL and Perl, and it was a nightmare to handle it because he had to run many different machines, most of which were idle all the time, just for these different software loads. So Woolworth agreed to pay for the development of a feature that would allow him to do this. In other words, run five different versions of MySQL and seven different versions of Apache because that's what the customers had. And so the deal was, was that he would pay for the development. And then after one year, Paul could commit them, Paul Henning, sorry, could commit them to FreeBSD. And after one year of him using this exclusively, jails were included in FreeBSD 4, and the world was forever changed. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. Um, one neat thing about jails that I like is that jails can contain jails. And I exploit that for Pudrier, and it is truly wonderful. I run Pudrier in a jail, and it is so much better than running it on the host. Um, mm. There's a lot of other things that people can go in into this article and read about it in, ter in terms of what jails are typically used for. But for me, I, I split it up because I, I literally, not exaggerating, run five different versions of Postgres and two different versions of MySQL on the same host in jails because I do regression testing. Yeah, and uh, that's that's what it's for, or one uh, way of using it. Yep. They also mentioned that it's like a one-way mirror that you can peek yep. from the outside in, but not from the inside out. Yep. If you're on a VM, it's very difficult for you to get inside the VM and see what's going on. But on a jail-based system, if you're on the host, you can see all the processes. That's all the processes in, in all the jails, or you can just peer into one jail and sort of see what's going on here. Who's logged in? What commands are they running? 
oh, that's interesting. What is this person doing? Yeah. And there's no way for anyone in the jail to know that you're doing that. They don't see that you're logged in. They don't see any commands that you're running. Uh, unless they knew exactly where to look, they wouldn't even know that they're running in a jail. Yeah. And there's also like, I had students sometimes when they uh, start out with jails, they, they kind of mess up the networking in the jail, but you can still always get in from the outside with a root shell mm -hmm. and fix that for them. Yep. So that's, that's also very well. I use them all the time. I, I think once you know the basics and how to set them up, you probably don't want to run everything native yeah. on the host anymore. I mean, on my systems, I'm in a jail way more often than I am on the host. So yeah, check out the article for a bit more backgrounds in the history. And uh, I think Clara will uh, write further articles like this and we will share them with you. All right, now it's time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we have a jobs posting, or two even, uh, over at fosjobs.net, and this is uh, two jobs or um, employments they are seeking on the FreeBSD Foundation. The first one is looking um, for a senior arm kernel engineer. And that one is, uh, well, the, the jobs listing is uh, in our show notes, of course. And they are looking for people with experience in the arm space um, to bring first class arm 64 support to FreeBSD uh, to support the FreeBSD Foundation. And you are going to be working uh, with them, of course, and their um, developers there to uh, bring up FreeBSD ARM 64 to fully support a tier one status. Uh, that includes implementing the kernel functionality uh, to be in, on parity with x86 and also adding uh, support extensions found in the ARM architecture uh, 8.2 through 8.5. And so responsibilities are developing a kernel, a FreeBSD kernel and userland support for ARM uh, 8.2, as I said, through ARM 8.5 and beyond, participating in all the aspects in software development, including code reviews, testing, design, debugging, performance evaluations, and things like that, coordinating with other open source collaborators, including corporate developers, FreeBSD community members, and volunteers. So. Uh, and also supporting the project coordinator. So that's a different role then in promoting project progress through even uh, like event talks, blogs, press releases, videos, or other uh, channels. So the skills they are looking for is a strong C knowledge skills and extensive experience in the LLVM or GCC tool chains. LLVM is preferred here. They also need you to have low level CPU experience, including strong understanding of system architecture topics like MMUs caches, interrupt controllers, and timers. Uh, extensive kernel development experience is also required, either on Linux or FreeBSD or other BSDs. And uh, expertise in low-level systems, including virtual memory, exception handling, device drivers, offload and accelerator engines, vulnerability mitigations, and system security, debugging, performance profiling, and optimization. And, uh, you know, the typical things like excellent written and verbal communication skills, uh, self-directed and self-motivation, and ability to work collaboratively with members, developers, and team members. The thing I want, wanted to note about this is the full-time position. Yes. It's not a contracting. Uh, 
it, like 401k, usual benefits, and most importantly, remote worker. Yeah. So foundation is shifting a little bit uh, their their efforts because I mean we don't have to support conferences in the way we used to uh, unless we can do that again. And so um, the money should go into these uh, development areas that directly benefits the FreeBSD community. And so that's why we're uh, creating this position. And the other one is a open source project coordinator, same uh, place of work, FreeBSD Foundation, same uh, benefits. And what do they need for that? Uh, so they're looking for an intermediate level project manager to ensure that projects are delivered on time within scope and budget and with minimal risk. Uh, so earlier or at the moment, this is done with a, a full-time uh, employee, but this is, um, you know, the projects keep piling up. And so we want to have a, a person that's coordinating those and making sure they're followed through. And that's why we're creating a separate position also to free up a couple of resources there and then um, have that person uh, also, you know, work with the community and the uh, other um, like sponsors and other companies that are interested in making FreeBSD development happen. So this is one of the main uh, goals for this role. So responsibilities, uh, developing project plans, tracking progress and provide progress reports and promoting the project progress through event talks, blogs, press releases and the like coordinating with internal developers and external collaborators to ensure the tasks are completed on time, communicate with open source project stakeholders, communicate with new project members and assist with the onboarding, uh, facilitating and assisting FreeBSD Foundation developers and the community uh, on our initiatives, planning and execution of objectives. And if you're interested in that, we have the full jobs posting in our show notes. And as Dan already said, you have the same benefits like the other uh, in a 401k employer contribution, things like that. And this is in a uh, remote location as well, or remote work. Uh, and there could be a post-pandemic opportunity to work in the FreeBSD Foundation office, um, but that's at the moment uh, still not uh, fixed yet. So, uh, But in, if you're interested in those, either the ARM kernel developer or this one, uh, get in touch. And we're looking forward to uh, your Vida and other information. Cool. So it's nice to see that the foundations are putting the efforts in some uh, long-term sustainable uh, development uh, projects or, you know, positions that uh, they can fill. Then next is Hello System releases a new ISO for this macOS-inspired BSD desktop OS. So this is over at Foronix as well. And what's that about? So the Hello System I've seen this before. It's basically a desktop system for creators with a focus on simplicity, elegance, and usability. So it's all based on FreeBSD, but the desktop utilities are written with PYQT5, and it's supposed to look and feel like macOS. Well, maybe not look and feel, but it's inspired by macOS built on on FreeBSD. And I've heard some people say, well, if you're going to do that, why don't you just run Mac? But that's not the point. The point is they want to run FreeBSD under it, and they like the UI experience that comes with OS X. So they're, they're duplicating the OS experience. Uh, it, was, it is a pre-release, and so there isn't any detailed change log yet. But on the GitHub uh, project page, you can find an AMD64 ISO build 
for those that want to give it a try. And like I said, I, I've seen this mentioned several times over the past few weeks, and I've not tried it, um, but I've heard a lot of people talk about it, and I think you should give it a look if you're looking, if you're contemplating a different uh, desktop system. Yeah, and it could be a start into, like some people are shying away from having just the, the terminal after they did the installation so here they have a full desktop and can try out freebsd without you know having to to touch the terminal too often or too early and then make their uh, little experiences on that and that is a way um, like for creatives as you said to get into the bsd space or the mindset it certainly looks pretty the screenshot they have here uh they, they've got Twitter up in one interface, and they've got the taskbar along the bottom, and then the desktop has the icons of whatever's on the desktop. That's very close to the original, and I mean you could have the same, you know, icons and and fonts, and even the the launch bars they could have as a separate one. It's a bit, um, you know, bits and pieces of the of the whole Mac uh, OS system, but yeah, mm -hmm. it's a good start. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so uh, try it out and we will let you know if there's a um, major release coming or if um, there's something new in this space. Uh, then next, uh, we have a trip into FreeBSD. And um, is this seems like a beginner uh, experience of sorts. So it starts off with, I normally deal with Linux machines. Linux is what I know and it's what I've been using since it was since I was in college. And a friend of mine has been quaxing me into trying out FreeBSD. And I decided to try it out and see what it's like. Uh, here's some details about my experience and what I've learned. Okay. Uh, so they tried out FreeBSD on the following hardware. QMU slash KVM on AMD64. A Raspberry Pi 4 with 4 gigabytes. And a Raspberry Pi uh, 3B with 1 gigabyte. Uh, they had the most luck with the Raspberry Pi 3 though. The KVM machine would hang indefinitely or infinitely after the install process, waiting for the mail servers to do a DNS probe of its own host name. Ah, okay. I do not know automatically FQDNS for my VMs. Ah, okay, that's why. Uh, they're pretty sure they were doing something wrong there, but they didn't or weren't able to figure out what it was needed to do in order to disable the DNS probe blocking. It might time out at one point, but it's definitely taking a long time. I've been there myself. Uh, okay, so after waiting for about five minutes, they gave up and decided to try out the Raspberry Pi 4. Uh, there, the most uh, that's the most powerful ARM board they own. Uh, it has four gigabytes of RAM and a quad-core processor that uh, has way more than sufficient for their needs. Yeah, uh, they were hoping to use FreeBSD on that machine so they could benefit from the hardware the most. Following the instructions on the wiki page, that's the link to the FreeBSD wiki, um, they downloaded the 12.2 Raspberry Pi image and flashed it to an SD card using Etcher and then put the SD card in, turned the Raspberry on and then waited for it to show up on the network. Except it never showed up on the network. Oh, I see. They ran scans with Nmap specifically. They provide the command there and the IP address never showed up. They also didn't see any new MAC addresses on the network. So that led them to believe that the Pi was failing to boot. Hmm. Ah, that's kind of a bad uh, first <laughs> experience there. Uh, but yeah, we, we, we get there. They downloaded an image for the 13 beta and followed the guide they linked as well. Uh, that claims to make it work on the Pi, but they got the same issue. Hmm. 
The Raspberry Pi unfortunately has a micro HDMI port on it, so they were unable to attach it to their monitor to see any error messages. But after trying for a while, uh, they could set up a serial port to get the serial log messages. Spoiler, they couldn't. Um, and then dug up their Pi 3 and stuck the same SD card into it, hooked it up to the monitor, attached a spare keyboard, and then booted into FreeBSD. Oh wow, this is yeah, two two bad two bad starts that typically drives people off completely without a third try. Um, but they stick with it and seems like um, they found that FreeBSD is very down-to-earth operating system. They have a handbook that legitimately includes all of the information you need to get up and running. Following the handbook, they set up a password, installed the package tool, set up the fish shell. Is that the shell? Yeah. And then also installed the Go compiler toolchain for the hell of it. Package is very minimal, looking package manager. It doesn't have very many frills and it is integrated into the system pretty darn well. It looks like they prefer putting everything into user local, including init scripts and other configuration files. Yep, that's what they do. Uh, it also talk about a little bit of custom services. So speaking of services, they wanted to see how hard it would be to get a custom service running on a FreeBSD box. At the minimum, they would need the following. The binary build for FreeBSD, uh, in this case, uh, ARM64, and installed into user local bin, a user account for that service, an init script, and to enable that in etcrcconf. Uh, they have, uh, oh yes, <laughs> they decided to do this with a service they made years ago called What's My IP, which is useful. Uh, then they describe how they built the binaries and um, added the user, that's fairly straightforward. And then they talk about how to create the init script, so that's cool. And seems like, and after enabling the service, it seems to run. Oh yeah, it's very specific. Uh, probably beginners wouldn't uh, do that at first they, when they start out with the Unix. But since they had some experience, they got that running. I like how they created a, a user to run the service as. That's not, yeah, that's, that's a good. That, that's not something you see very often. Not, yeah, not, not in a, practice. not in a first time using the system. Yeah. So they seem to have some early experience that uh, they uh, have used before. So that's good. Yeah, always encapsulate some special services to a separate user. If that gets compromised somehow, then that user only has the permissions of that specific one. And that's very limited, typically. Uh, uh, it's always interesting to see first-timers outline their experience because it helps us to improve either the code or the documentation, at least one of them. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah that's for sure. I have two colleagues. And they both have never used FreeBSD and ZFS before. So I'm thinking what I'm going to teach them first, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, you could teach each one separately, but when you start with FreeBSD, you get into the installer and the first thing there you would do is also show them ZFS. But you could also show ZFS on an already installed system. And then, you know, after you did the file system and the disk management, you could go, oh, look, this is uh, the operating system around it or one of those. Yep. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's good. And they close this uh, experience report with overall FreeBSD is an interesting tool. And if uh, they have never a good use for it in their server infrastructure, they will definitely give it a solid look. And uh, they just wish it wasn't easy enough to manage a FreeBSD system as it is to manage a NixOS system. A lot of their uh, faffing about with RCConf and RC scripts wouldn't have been needed to happen if that was the case. Yeah, I mean, 
that's a bit of a difference here, but that's also described in the handbook. And uh, yeah, what I mean, there's always uh, beginner experiences that are not that well, but with a bit of reading, uh, that should be doable. Yeah, and I went and had a look at what NixOS is. And uh, I'm not, not sure yet, but Nix is a tool that takes a unique approach to package management. So I'm not really sure if it's, I can't tell yet. I have to look further to give any more information. Yeah, I mean, yeah, depends on where people come from. If they're completely new to Unix, yep. then it's a different experience than when they have used some other variant. Cool. Um, so before we get into our next section, we should mention our sponsor this week. This is Tarsnap. And Tarsnap is a very unique service that makes you uh, back up your system, but in a secure way that no one can get back to your backups because they're encrypted and they're encrypted before they leave your machine. Why are they doing that? Well, that's the way they do it in a secure way because you never know what people uh, do this, uh, what they do with your backups once they are on the cloud. I mean, the cloud providers have all the access there, but if it's encrypted and you are the only person who's holding the key, then they cannot make heads and tails of all of that gibberish in your files. And if you've used tar before, the command line is very similar. You create an archive, they do a bit of, a bit of deduplication and compression there. So your all the data that you have to backup is much less than that. I guess, Dan, you've used Tarsnap as well. I do, and I use it every day. Yeah, you could have periodic snapshots or you know backups of your new files. It doesn't have to send the files that are already in the cloud. Uh, that's AWS in this case. Again, so they only determine what's the difference between your last backup and the current backup and only send those to the uh, backup service. It's fairly cheap. I mean, I think at the beginning of the year, I charged it with an additional $10. But this will keep me throughout the year, and I don't have to, you know, spend uh, a lot of dollars on that. Uh, yeah, it's very transparent. They also provide the source code for you to look at if you find any errors. They also have bug bounties, and they are very sure that their system is secure and the crypto is valid and will not be uh, hacked. As long as you keep the key with you and don't give that away, then you can always get your backups back. I forget I'm using it. Yeah, it's just running in the background and. It's just running and running and just yep. keeps you making backups. Yep. But one day when you need them, you're happy that you did. Yes. <laughs> no one ever regrets making a backup. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's also a way to migrate your system to another one to just not start at the, big, uh, the very beginning after you're taking it out of the box. You just pull your data over and uh, start where you left off. Okay, time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have... Testing Linux Steam Proton on GhostBSD with BSD Linuxulator. No audio. Ah, so this is a YouTube video or a tutorial of sorts. And there you could test out how well Linux Steam runs on GhostBSD in the BSD Linuxulator. So that, uh, I mean, the BSD Linuxulator is a tool set that allows you to run Linux binaries on FreeBSD. And Steam has been kind of a bit of an edge case that hasn't worked well in the past, but they did a lot of work in the Linuxulator recently with 13, FreeBSD 13, and it seems like they're now able to run the latest Steam version and run a couple games. What I found interesting about this is that you're running a compatibility layer on a compatibility layer. 
because Proton itself is a compatibility layer for Microsoft Windows games to run on Linux-based operating systems. And then they're running this on FreeBSD using the Linux binary compatibility layer, often referred <laughs> yeah. to as Linux layer. But yeah. yeah, there's a lot of layers there. Yeah. And <laughs> so people listening to the, hearing about this compatibility layer for the first time, it allows unmodified Linux binaries to run on FreeBSD. It doesn't involve virtual machines or emulation. Instead, it provides the binaries with a kernel interface that's identical to those provided by the real Linux kernel. And it's sort of the same way that 32-bit FreeBSD binaries will run on a 64-bit kernel. And I'm sure you've heard this, and I always get questioned about it when I, when I say it. I keep hearing stories about Linux running faster on FreeBSD than it runs on Linux. Yeah, sometimes uh, I haven't done any specific benchmarks, but I hear this too, and probably depends from application to application. It might differ, but it could be with the different memory management system and VM subsystem could benefit. Yeah, <laughs> which makes it even more uh, awesome to to have. Yeah, and yeah. Well, to get. To get this stuff running on, on GhostBSC is pretty cool. Yeah. So check out the video and uh, try it out. If there's uh, anything that you want to run there, you have, have a good chance that it might work. Oh, yeah. Next, then we have a new build of Dragonfly BSD 5.8. I, I, I looked at this, and it's based on the FreeBSD ports tree as of January 17th. And they did a, a few cherry picks. But reading the um reading the announcement i thought it was a new release of dragonfly or is it, is it just supports tree i i couldn't figure it out from this it, it looks like it's a new binary package a new binary package set right sorry i thought it was a new build of dragonfly bsd but this yeah, is yeah they do these this, uh, quarterly things yeah. like binary package sets yeah yeah um so yeah and there's actually a lot of packages available. Like there's 30,000 packages available easily in this set. And that that's impressive. I did not know that Dragonfly was uh, so package rich, but it's based on FreeBSD. So it's, I imagine they're using a very similar package system, I hope. Yeah, I think they, uh, they made some extra stuff there, but um, the base packages uh, or the base make files there uh, is the same that uh, the FreeBSD package uses. Yeah, I'm 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 seeing uh, package uh, delete package query. It's very similar. Mm. Yeah, you would know with fresh ports. <laughs> I, I don't know much more about installing and and deleting ports than the average person. I just know how to get information out of raw port files. Mm. That's where I know a little bit more. But I'm I certainly don't know everything there is to know about packages. It may it, it may may be surprising, but no, I don't. I know I know how to run make make minus v. Oh yes, that is a good source. Yeah, I mean you just show what's fresh and mm -hmm. new in there, which is also interesting. I I refer to that page probably every other day. I I'm in there once or twice a day at least when I'm working. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can imagine. Just looking around, everything's working. No, yeah, that that too. But I also get in there for, for work. I use it daily at work. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, you found it useful enough so that other people can also use it. And so that's a benefit for everyone. Indeed. Okay, so they note that the pseudo CVE is covered in this update. So that is a big, uh, a big one that all the Unixes uh, had to take care of. So update your pseudo if you haven't to 1.9.5.p2. I remember, um, I remember that. I remember having to fix that. Yeah, it's, it's one big Ansible for me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's definitely good to do. Um, the other thing there was seem there seems to be an upgrade needed from package from 114.x to 116.x. Otherwise, you get an error, and they describe that seems like Lua script failing. Uh, it's a known bug. Simply copy a sample mirror config file over, and then you're back uh, with a working system. Okay, good. So that's a Dragonfly BSD. And we also have an, uh, yeah, it's, an, it's a tutorial. Uh, installing OpenBSD 6.8 on Pine64 Rock64 media board. That's interesting. Oh, yes, it's a tutorial with pictures, or at least one. And um, there's an interesting diagram in here which tells you which USB port to use and which USB ports you shouldn't use. And that's near the end of the end of the page yes it's at the bottom of the page and there's only one usb port is working uh right now with openbsd but immediately below this photograph they tell you uh about the issue that they've opened to get it fixed ah good and so that's board specific not openbsd specific yes i i think it's openbsd specific i don't think it's board board specific because the issue was raised uh no uh, it's part of the Rock 64 OpenBSD project. That's where the issue was raised. So I guess it seems to be specific to that project. Okay. Uh, so that's when people are aware of it, they can uh, work around that. And yeah, they cover pretty much everything from getting OpenBSD uh, installed and running on that. They even provide the... Um, the message for all the devices they could detect and seems like a lot of things seems to work uh the only limitations they list there the usb thing that dan mentioned and hdmi output is currently not working but i'm fairly sure they're still working on improving this and that it will work in the future i like these little boards yeah i mean just the 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 way of like carrying them around much easier than <laughs> the, the big machines that we used to have. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they can do a lot of stuff. I mean, I don't need to, the biggest uh, desktop computer to do a bit of, you know, no. temperature monitoring no. or whatever. No, not at all. I mean, a lot of what a laptop is, is keyboard and screen. Right. Yeah. And if you look inside, a lot of what's in there is battery and uh storage the actual computer quote part of it is, is much smaller yeah yeah that's miniaturization and it's still going on and it's very cheap it's an as an, as an education system for for students uh that's a good start into your uh any kind of embedded work or getting to know of an operating system how it works how it starts how it boots it's a really a good way to Get familiar with computers and last in this part we have a couple of videos already are up from fosdem 21 fosdem was 
from February 6th and 7th. That was a virtual conference this year. And uh, they had a BSD dev room as well. And they had four, uh, uh, yeah, you know, talks there. Uh, the first one was managing virtual resources with CBSD and beyond. Uh, hello again. Uh, with simplicity, elegance, and usability for the desktop. Then there was a talk about porting FW FWUPD, or the, uh, the firmware updates, uh, to the BSD distribution. So FWUPD is one uh, for the Linuxes of this world, where you can say, please update all my firmware, and you don't have to uh, you know, put in some special vendor ISO or something that you, it knows where to find these uh, drivers for your uh, uh, specific system and then pulls it down. And this seems to have been ported for the BSDs. And the other, the last talk was what's new in sudo and syslog ng. And all of these have been recorded or pre-recorded. And you can watch those videos if you're interested in any of those. I'm particularly interested in the studio and syslog ng1. That, that's what I want to see. Yeah, the description uh, tells us that you can do a couple of things with syslog ng that you probably didn't know it can. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, they probably talk about that yeah. there. And the firmware update, that's interesting to me. Yeah, because the more machines we have, we also uh, want to keep them updated without having to do reboots all too often. And if that's possible, and seems to work, I haven't looked into it too much, but uh, I know that it works on Linux, the few Linuxes that I have to run, and it's fairly uh, good. And if they have managed to port that, uh, that's a good way to keep our servers up and running and updated as well. Uh, also check out the other dev rooms. There's a Postgres dev room that's uh, over two days even, uh, always looking at those. Uh, but uh, there was one about cloud computing, community, performance, and plenty of other developer rooms. There's pretty much something for everyone in the FOSDEM talks or in the tracks. Cool. And I think that pretty much, wait, if you were looking for the feedback and questions section, uh, we got a little bit down with questions uh, because people haven't sent us a couple of those in the recent uh, weeks. So if you have any questions about the BSDs, about the show, anything that you always wanted to ask us, then let us know and send your uh, mails to feedback at bsdnow.tv because otherwise this section would be very empty and we would be very sad then. But it was definitely a nice way of having Dan on the show this way. And thank you for uh, filling in for Alan. My pleasure. And yeah, it was, it was great. Uh, I enjoyed it. And maybe we will have uh, this done uh, in the future. And so people can uh, look forward to that. Yeah, that's good to know. Um, if people are also interested in being a moderator from time to time, and uh, either Alan and I couldn't couldn't make a show, then we'd be happy to take people, uh, um, yeah, as a standby moderator of sorts. All right, so thank you for listening, and hopefully see you or hear you next time. Mm -hmm.